This is the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. And welcome everybody to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. I am your host, John Allen. And remember everyone, wherever you're listening to me or watching me, please subscribe. That will give you uh, the ability to get a notification every time I release a new episode. And speaking of new episodes, here I am with Ka Mon Muk. Hi. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> you know, it's going great. And I've been really looking forward to this episode. I seem to be looking forward to all of my episodes recently, but maybe that is, maybe you have a little bit of fault in that because I've come into a circle of friends, a, a circle of acquaintances where one person knows the next guest that I have. So they suggest them and so on and so on. So there's two or three people that suggested you and I get in touch with each other. And uh, uh, I, I had Rawa on yesterday and she spoke very highly of you. So here we are now with this little circle of friends and acquaintances now. It's been a kind of a series, a thread in my uh, podcast for the last week or so. Are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know. Yeah, yeah, okay, I yeah. can tell you. Um, I might have some Wi-Fi issues. I've been having that issue for the ah, last week. Okay. It's been a real, um, but it comes back on quick. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. No, so this is um, this is a, a uh, conversation I've been looking forward to having. You are um, the founder and an investigative journalist for the Oslo Desk. Tell us, what is the Oslo Desk? Well. You know, I, do, I usually go by the story of how it started. So yes. I'm going to do that, do that um, because please. then you get an, so you get an idea of why it was started in the beginning, um, because right now we're at a point, you know, everyone's asking me, like, is this a newspaper? Is this a podcast? Is this a news magazine? What is it? You know, exactly. And do you I say, do you say yes, all the above? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we're, we're everything in in, in sense. We we kind of have this aim of, um, you know, becoming a bit like Vice, basically. You know, um, but basically, about three four years ago, um, it was a point in my life where I wanted to become a journalist, um, and it was a time where I wasn't really sure how because my background is in environmental geoscience, um, and then my sort of migrating to this new career path it was it was a combination of many different things really at the time it was kind of um because i was writing as a creative writer at the time but also i got to um you know had a student who i was teaching cantonese but he's a journalist himself and then at the same time i had a friend of mine who was going through it something really horrible and i ended up becoming a bit of a detective oh, um, interesting <laughs> And uh, helping her dig into um, the system here and what kind of help she had. You know, she was kind of very down. She didn't know where to look. And I said, you know, let's see what I can do, you know. Um, so it was a stalking case. During that time, there was no um, anti-stalking law, uh, particularly including um, digital um stalking so this was here in norway online. you're talking about yeah this was yeah. norway this is norway you know um and there was a thankfully there was an ngo that was helping uh, victims of stalking because it was horrendous you know politicians were getting foot stalked and there were parents who were getting stalked and there was one case that um kind of went on in you know norwegian newspaper where a, a mother had to change i think 20 commune you know 20 places with her kids just to get away from her that's stalker, a lot of moving know? 
Exactly. And that's a lot and of pressure. That's a lot of pressure on the victim to have to fix the issue themselves. Right. Exactly. Now, what, so, what year? What year was this when uh, the, your situation? Oh, was? this this was in two thousand. Let's see. I think it must have been thirteen, fourteen. I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was just at the point where I was trying to develop a career in journalism and still trying to figure out how, um, but I knew like, I know how to write, you know, and I started from there and looking at how I could, um, help people around me. Um, but that's the thing is I, I I realized that even when I written the story out, um, I approached a lot of Norwegian newspapers and they wouldn't, you know, publish a story or anything like that. Um, and then I only knew from my uh, student who was a journalist like that's not possible because you're not a staff type of things like but what <laughs> you know yeah. so I was like okay so I'm like okay maybe there's something I don't know about the industry very well so, I need to so, find so in other words it's not like it is in America where if you're an independent journalist you can submit a well-written or a well-documented story and a major news organization will will, will pick it up but they don't do that right here. exactly in Norway, very, not very often. It doesn't often. seem like that. No, no maybe, for mean, some the of the, maybe for some of the weekly magazines that are in some of the newspapers, maybe people can do that. But um, it felt like for me, what he was telling me and what I understood from the industry here is that they have to know you first. I so say for, for, say, for example, if you're already a student, um, and they got to know you as a student before they know your work and everything. But from an independent one, you know, they probably like, eh, no, nope, yeah. I don't know you very well. So I'd rather not go down that road. Regardless but, of what know- the story, regardless <laughs> of what the story is and regardless of how well written or well documented yeah, the story is, there's exactly. just no way in. No. So the thing was, it's, it was interesting because, um, I realized the other way to actually get in is actually become an opinion, you know, debater. Um, and you can write this op-ed pieces yeah. in, but it's like, well, you know, there's, that way, but why can't you become a contributing writer or journalist right. in, in some sense, which really frustrated me. So I ended up having to, you know, go through some years trying to figure out, okay, let's, let's, you know, hone the skills online because there's no way I'm going to pass the Baggins test, which, you know, is, yeah, is, a, yeah. is an advanced Norwegian level. And I realized that I, I don't want to spend years and years trying to, you know, perfect that, that language that's going to be always be native for me. Um, and so I built up my own, you know, self-learning path, you know, taking on projects and looking at how the case has been run through different, you know, uh, media, you know, looking at New York times and so forth and how they're running the stories. Um, and then I really, and then I started volunteering for uh, a local startup, a newspaper. And I like, okay, you know, let's, let's try, you know, even though like my Norwegian is, you know, good enough. <laughs> so, um, but I knew that they were going to do some editing anyway. So I was like, okay, let's try. And I had an aim, like I'm going to write just five articles in Norwegian. I just need to get out there. I need to know how the process works. I need to understand how the mentality of you yeah. know, the, yeah. the, the newsroom work here. So I did that. I did actually seven articles, but where did you submit the them? Yeah, I submit to them. So because I was a volunteering, like journalist, you know, writer, just a different, different and- newspapers. Yeah, it yeah. was a local, it's a startup. So okay. at that time, yeah. it was like a local uh, Oslo newspaper that was just starting up and they okay. needed writers, they needed people and they, yeah. they were willing to kind of train you as well and all that, which is very nice. Um, but I realized at the end of it that how they were running news is not how I want to run news. Um, I realized that the newsrooms didn't have the competency to deal with um, particularly, um, how should I put it, the racism issues, the kind of diversity issues and, you know, how the narrative amongst immigrants are. And it kind of kept perpetuating a certain narrative that 
I felt that they didn't realize and put me into a bad spot, basically. So I kind of felt. Do you think that's simply because of the lack of diversity in the workforce in these media outlets? In other words, uh, there's no black or brown people working there. So how is that news outlet going to properly tell the story of those issues and those struggles? Is that what you're thinking? Definitely. Yeah, definitely that's, that's plays a part in it, but it's also ignorance. It's also ignorance. It's kind of this Mm. blind spot that they, they didn't think it was an issue, you know, until, and, and they kind of, they have their own unconscious bias that they don't realize. Um, and, but I realize it and I'm like going, and because like I written an article, unfortunately it was not taken very well. I think like if I had an editor with that kind of competence. So what happened was, is that the very last article I written was about, um, an African mother who, um, the, you know, everything was true in the sense that, you know, she had to either choose to con- con- car- carry on studying, um, her degree, um, so that she can continue to taking a student loan or drop it and be able to take NAV support. So I think like that was unbelievable. The fact that she had to choose either or, you know, yeah. and she was a single mom at the time and she was struggling. Yeah. And, you know, when the, and when the article came out, it was horrifying to see so much trolls in the comments. Uh, yes. And it was in, and obviously that impacted her. I just want to say, I just want to say for those non, yeah. for my non-Norwegian listeners, I have some listeners back in the States, for example, uh, NAV is the social support element, uh, the welfare element uh, in the Norwegian system, just so they understand when you mention NAV. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, I should uh, kind of uh, explain that. Um, so then it's, it's like, she's kind of in between stuck. things. Yeah, and, she's kind yeah, of stuck. She's stuck. And, it's, and it's like, why, why are you being so mean to her? I didn't understand it. And, you know, because of, I kind of went paralyzed afterwards because sure. I actually, you know, her friends were a bit annoyed with me. Like, how can you publish such an article, you know, knowing that this will happen? And then on the other hand, I had my editors going like, um, they're getting calls from uh, the NAF um, saying that I have fabricated the story. Um, and wow. I had to, so I was like, shit, I'm, I'm at a point where I feel like I'm the enemy. Well, and, what was um, NAV's basis so, for claiming that it was fabricated? What do, they, they think like I didn't have the evidence. They think like you know they. they well, the were, evidence they is the direct to... is the direct word of the of the African mother. There's the evidence <laughs> right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing was like the editor was asking me, "Hey, did you call them up? You know, did you do you know who it was the um, sucks behind, which is the the person case who's worker. handling her case, the caseworker, exactly?" And uh, I said, "Yeah, I got all the information. I got the evidence here. If you want it, I can give it to you." I said that I called them twice and I couldn't get through. And I actually literally recalled the whole entire waiting situation and going through the people because I knew from my work, you know, as as a person of color, as a journalist. If they could find anything, it would be your integrity and oh, you know yes. whether you've done your done your, your story right, you know, and all that. So I made sure everything was documented. Right. So when that happened, I, I realized that I kind of felt a little bit that the the newsroom, the editors weren't really backing me. Um, I kind of feel like they were kind of saving their own skin at that time. And I got incredibly depressed afterwards. And I was actually going to leave journalism. I was going like, I'm done. Um, I'm done with all this. You know, I don't know if I'm doing it. Being right but it took some time when i got really annoyed of the media at that time that there was an article that came out from sylvia listhouse she's the um frp which is this anti-immigrant you know party here um or they like to call themselves not the you know anti-immigrant 
Creation Party, they call themselves the Progress Party, but I don't know where we're progressing, yeah, exactly. honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so then it's like, okay. Um, and then I remember like she literally was saying in that article um, that the press covered was, um, you know, as foreign mothers, you should be happy with the fact that your child is left here in Norway, but you should go back to your own country. And I thought that was so inhumane. And I was a single it's mother. Very, it's very America. inhumane. And we see a lot of that kind of talk online um, and in the comments section to some of these online newspapers and, and the online um, the online division of some of the television news stations. The comments are just flooded with those kind of statements. Yeah, leave exactly. your kid here, but you go back. Now think about that, that people can actually say something like that to a parent. I it's it's in it's inhumane. You yeah. use the right word. It's inhumane. It is absolutely inhumane. And 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 the fact that I felt that the media weren't even being critical about what she was saying, that was really that made me even more upset. Yeah. And <clears throat> and obviously, you know, um, I was actually here when the Brevik thing happened, so I remembered it very well how it all ran down. Um, and I just realized at the point, like, okay, you know, suck it up. You know, you yes, you made a mistake, but maybe use that as a lesson because you know more than anyone else, you know, how that feels now. Uh, you know, you had to be, you know, culturally sensitive, you know, racist, racially um, sensitive. Let's, let's start from there. So that's kind of where I got to the point where I wanted to start something like the Elsa Des. I didn't really know. It was just kind of an idea that came to my mind that I wanted to change how journalism was covered. Um, and it was only at that time when I was talking to colleagues and friends of mine around me who was working in journalism that they told me that the term that I needed to use was constructive journalism because that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to not just talk about the challenge, I wanted to look at the solution because I think that as long as we start talking about the solution and the root causes of the problem, then we're actually moving forward. Um, and but that is an that element, is yeah, and that's an element that is very, uh, it, it's, it's, it's leaving a big black hole in today's, um, uh, uh, in today's news uh, uh, picture. So much talk about the problems, so little talk about the solutions. You have pundits who come in or, or panelists who come on and they have all these facts about what the problems are and who to blame and where to point the finger. But I don't hear any, or I hear very few people talking about any kind of a solution, any kind of dialogue with the opposition, so to speak. Where is that, you know? Exactly, exactly that point. And, and I think it was really interesting for me when I started my investigations here that there's a lack of research that backed me up. So I actually had to do the research. I had to kind okay. of formulate the problem, you yeah, know, so yeah. uh, so a lot of people are like going, OK, you know, I'm looking at your site, but you're saying you're a constructive journalist, but you're still talking a bit about the problem. But I said that that's because the problem is not recognized yet. Yes. Um, and so I had to do that work first. You know, I had to understand like, okay, the bank problems that um, immigrants were facing, you know, what were the impacts to that, you know, and also collecting um, situations of the, you know, foreign mothers, you know, how their situation is like meeting with the system, with the courts and, you know, biased psychologists and so forth. Da, da, da. Um, and it became, uh, you know, it was very annoying. For me, I, must admit, for, <laughs> I can imagine. It's such a frustration because, you know, you're, you're trying to cover like a problem that is in the UK or the US. So I have to keep falling back on researchers in the UK and the US who've covered these stories yeah. before, who has the statistic, who have researchers looking into this. Like even like the simplest, you know, um, the barriers to financial, um, you know, services for immigrants that is not done here. 
I, oh. I was completely shocked um, because in the UK, there's a think tank that built a lot of research around this and I actually saw the consequence. It was a whole entire like research project papers that talked about this. And I had to rely on that to understand like the consequences, not that, you know, the consequences is not obvious or anything. But, so Norway yeah. has a big blind spot when it comes to that. And when it comes to other issues, they're just not, again, uh, probably what motivated you to start the Oslo desk is because some of these issues just aren't being spoken about in the Norwegian news. They have a blind spot for it. It's not an issue for them. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's um, it's such a big blind spot. It also um, kind of doesn't help my work either, you know, because <laughs> um, because it's like, you know, I rely on so many um, people to give me the sign, like researchers, you know, people who work in, you know, maybe as lawyers, as, you know, in the police and so forth. But if they're already biased, if they don't even have it, they don't really see the challenge or the problem in the first place. And you're asking them the question, Hey, you know, did you realize this problem in the first place? They're like, yeah, but that's the problem for the politicians. Yes. You know, they kind of, they pass the ball to someone else again and again and again, and they expect me to pass the mic to them, but really they could do something about it too, you know? And I found that frustration uh, quite a bit. And, um, and yeah, the also desk was just kind of my way of, trying to tackle this but also I realized through my work even though I did write these stories um I do get a lot of messages from people saying I'm so glad you you know put a voice to the voiceless and that kept me going you know it made me realize that the work I was doing was was important enough to keep going because at times you know I have these dips where I'm going Oh, is, yeah. this, is, is, is this good enough? Is this, is, is, am I doing something here? You know, um, I don't and- have half of the megaphone that you do, but I feel that frustration where, you know, losing friends on a personal level or, or, or the negative feedback online, uh, you know, the sideways looks from people. And that can be so frustrating, but all of that gets turned around from just that one piece of feedback where someone says, Thank you for talking, a voice to the voiceless, like you said. Thank you for giving a voice to the voiceless. That can turn all of that depression or that negative that negative feeling or that hopeless feeling can be turned around with just that one little piece of feedback from, from one individual. Yeah. So, you know, the OSS was started up with a lot of frustration. Yeah. Um, and also for me to continue my passion journalism, actually. Um, you know, I keep telling people I didn't really have, like, any heroic thing that I wanted to do. It was really just, you know, I wanted to continue being a journalist, but I, I just couldn't find a way how. So I created that space for me to kind of do the stuff and to show that I can actually do it, you know. And that is what so. attracted me to you and your work is that you just said, you know, forget this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do, <laughs> I'm going to fill that hole that I see in, in the media picture here in Norway. I, I think that's, uh, Excuse my French. It's ballsy. It's tough. It's uh, it's uh, it's innovative. Who who's uh, who do you have at your side helping you through this? Now I, I know you're the boss there, but uh, you probably have some good coworkers or, or employees rather uh, helping you along the way. What kind of a crew do you have? Well, in the beginning, um, I was struggling a lot because I was, you know, I wasn't working in any big newsroom, so I don't have the, you know decades of experiences behind me. So I needed an editor who could be able to guide me to able to mentor me as I go along. And that's, you know, after some frustration, I'm like, 
you know, let's be vulnerable. You know, I, I remember like Steve Jobs was saying like, you know, just go ask for help. So yeah. I went online on Facebook and I went to forums and it's like, guys, I've set this up. I need some help. I need some guidance. And then that was how I met Melanie Coffey. And uh, I think you will love her actually, because she is. I'm going to write that name down. See, remember the circle of friends. <laughs> uh, she, she is so brilliant. She's been helping me out so much. So she, um, she worked for the Associated Press in in the U.S. for two decades, basically. So she's she's really became a reporter and she's um, became an editor. And then she also covers some very hard hitting um, news like the 9-11, say, for example. Um, and she was the one who's my mentor. She's been the one who really pushed me and guided me how to write even better with my articles. And she still is, you know, she still, although she has a full-time job, but she would take time out to kind of um, guide me and trying to see this through, you know, with me. Yeah. Um, so she's still on board and she's she's helping me with as an advisor and also helps me edited some very serious pieces like the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, she kind of stepped in, you know, she was there with me um, at the ground because I said, hey, look, you know, they did, the organizers decided to plan um, at two places and I can't split myself in two places. Can I need some help here, guys. So I kind of put that up on Facebook and then Melanie was like, yes, I'll be there for you. Oh, I was like, beautiful. great, thank you. So she was at the, you know, she was at the Stortinga site with uh, a friend of mine, Andre. So he's the kind of video journalist guy. He's okay. been doing a lot of the videos and everything. And he's been contributing so much of his time in the Oslo because he believed in the work that we've been doing. Um, and he, he's continuing to do that as well. Um, and then we had um, sort of other friends who just kind of come in and then come out kind of things. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, they're kind of like, okay, I can contribute to this. You know, I can help you out. So, so they're there when you need them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, it's, it's kind of... Um, so I would say like in, in my close network group, I have Melanie, uh, Andre, and I have a very good friend, my uh, Anthony, who's a professor in innovation and universal design. And, you know, he's been following my work and he understood the kind of the more important part of the media. And, and he's been kind of guiding me a little bit of what, you know, he can help me out with, you know, um, in terms of say, you know, the podcast, you know, I, I had a lot of stuff I want to say on my mind. I said, oh, why don't we do a podcast season on this, you know, where I in interview you instead you know instead of you interviewing people yeah. it's like okay cool you know if you feel like you can do that so he was there it's like yeah because i have so many questions and i think the audience would also who's been following you have these kind of questions sure. too and i was like okay let's do that so it's, it's it's you know the team like i have like very long committed people who's been helping me so that's you know melanie andre uh, anthony and i would say um i have a couple a couple of ones like michael and helena who's been seems to be helping me a little bit more frequently now so they probably are more within the team <clears throat> and then um and then i have like these other you know volunteers on the side you know that yeah. they they come in whenever they can so um i i just been very lucky i wish i can i mean for me i really wish that i can get enough revenue to kind of pay all of them where we can actually really run as a newsroom um because we kind of been doing this on a project basis like i'm applying for funding and then once we get the funding i'm able to pay them all um and sometimes i pay out of my own pocket money for my own salary to, to pay them to do some of the work for me because you know they they, they have their basic needs that they need to cover as well sure, so sure um so yeah so that's kind of the crew and sometimes i kind of 
you know, get people along and you know, some of my friends and I have like what I call strategic business partner, but they're like, they're like my friends, actually. They, they've been running their startups. They've been doing their things as well. Um, you know, I have a friend of mine who does marketing and he's been helping me a lot in terms of guiding uh, how do I get more traffic in social media yeah. um, or doing video work. And it's someone that I can bounce ideas off. You know, that's the most right. important thing of like in the creative process, even for maybe people think like, you know, there's no creativity when it comes to, you know, creating a report, but there is actually. Absolutely. So in that process, you know, I need someone to bounce those ideas off. So I have these people around me that, you know, someone who's yeah. expertise in videos, someone who's expertise in podcasts, someone who's expertise in text and in imagery. So I would just bounce off my ideas in, in that sense. So I would think that the funding uh, is a never ending job. Um, who are your funders? Are they private funders or is it basically just grants that you're getting from uh, from the Norwegian government? What, how, talk, can you talk about uh, the struggle of financing? So, yeah, most of, well, I would say most of the um, projects that we get funding is through either um, Fritod, which is the um, Freedom of Speech Foundation here, um, that they support journalists' um, projects and other general projects that goes within Freedom of Speech. Um, and we were lucky enough um, at the conference about a month or so ago where we got funding there. We also get funding from also Commune. Um, you know, if we have a project oh. that got, kind of goes into their criteria, and then we could do that. So that was about a few years back in 2018 where we got funding to, um, you know, train, sort of do some basic training in journalism uh, for refugees and immigrants. Okay. Um, and that was pretty cool. It was my first time and, you know, it was a bit stressful, but it, we got there. Um, and then after a while, it's um, it's just picking out all these grants where you can apply and see which one works. Yeah. But most of it actually is my salary. Um, so I, I, I have a part-time job and I, you know, leave about 10% of my salary back into the company so that, you know, that builds up. And then if I have enough and then someone comes along who's very talented and, you know, she, she or he shows shows up with really good work, then I say, you know what, I'm going to pay for this. And I can pay them a, a contribution to that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a struggle a lot. And, you know, people get a little bit shocked the fact that, oh, you're using your salary to pay people. It's like, yeah, of course, you know, no. <laughs> there's, there's no way of doing that. So. That's, the, that's the cost of, uh, of running a startup. It's, Absolutely. it's, it's not big dollars coming in from the get-go. It's something that has to be worked on and you kind of build up to it. Now you've been doing this for what, three, three years now? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah three, years. three years. So in those three years, it's like, I'm, I'm struggling as well. Um, I, I need to get a job, you know, to pay my own basic needs as well. So I was very lucky that over a year ago, I managed to get a part-time job. Um, and it's a bit more stable now so that I can, you know, um, able to invest a part of that salary back into back my into company. The company. Yeah. And um, I hustle as well on the side because it's a 50% position. So I hustle on the side for other projects. Um, some of them, I was very lucky during COVID time or just before the COVID hit us, we were um, we were approached by um, a lady who's a project leader of the Erasmus, a European project. So it's an initiative on, um, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's, um, it's a project between Germany, Sweden, and Norway, where they have initiative called something around family education. Okay. So, so they wanted us to be part of that process of um, coverage of, they were going to have a conference here and we were supposed to cover it, you know, from our side of okay. you know, our land. So, so it, was, it, was, it was nice because it meant that we had the editorial um, that we can, you know, really examine this family education 
education initiatives that they have and how they approach education. So when I when I talk about family education, I mean like immigrants or refugees coming over to a country and there is a program from the government yes. um, teaching them the language and how did it integrate into the society. So there's many initiatives um, in Norway, Sweden and Germany at the time. Mm. So we did a podcast around that and we were we were funded um, by the Erasmus um, program uh, oh, to do nice. this. So yeah, it, it means that we're, we're hitting some places, people are recognizing us. And yeah. I think like, particularly when it came with the education, it was hitting um, us a bit more. And I think it might be because I was working at a period of time um, uh, in something called the also EdTech cluster, which is basically what they call um, sort of a, a group of, um, businesses or startups that work around educational technology okay. so we were we were kind of I was kind of in that space uh-huh. of understanding educa- educational technology and the advancements that were going on here in Norway but also because my frustration of the educational system itself is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you know what is it that frustrates when, you um is is again the same thing the biasness the the way they teach um like language um and how sometimes I find, I showed that uh, mainly the, the reason I had was the teachers, um, how they taught me uh, Norwegian. I had to go private actually at the time, but there were a couple of episodes um, at this um, school that teaches immigrant Norwegian language where I had to take a break um, from the my first teacher. Um, he was really, really good uh, because that was the time when I was handling my separation and I wanted to go back to England, but then that didn't happen. So I was trying to get back into the system to finish off my Norwegian classes. And during that time, um, I got to meet one teacher. Um, and I, I remember like I was just sitting there, uh, and then this, this girl came in and she was pregnant. Um, obviously she, you know, when you're pregnant, you you kind of get tired. You're going to be late to class. You know, I think you should just let it go type of thing, you know, but, this teacher was so rude and racist. I was wow. unbelievable. She was, she What'd really, she, so she walked, the teacher walked past me and the, the pregnant lady sat down very close to me. And so the pregnant lady was sitting down on, on the chair and the teacher came running up to her, sort of walking swiftly up towards her and then kind of stood in front of her and saying that you should not be late. She was pointing the finger at her in such a way that it was a very power dynamic that she yeah. had authority yeah. over right. her. Right. And that really made me angry. So I stood up and say, how can you say such a thing? I was so angry for her. Like, Good for you. So, Good for you. <laughs> and, and I literally, I literally stole of that class. I'm, so, I'm not attending this class with such a teacher. So I walked out. <laughs> so I walked out, ran to the reception at bottom, uh, and I said that I have a problem with this teacher, and I need to change the teacher. This teacher had some issue, and then uh, she was like, "She was, she was." This receptionist was also biased. You know, I've heard her say things, screaming at people, saying you're not good enough in Norwegian. So I knew what I was. You know, she's not going to care school, what I'm going to say. What kind of school is this? Oh my <laughs> this god! <laughs> and they're supposed to be so, helping. This is an introductory course to make make immigrants feel welcome. Yeah, it's an introductory course, but it's also for those who were here on a family basis as well. So it was a combination of refugees and, you know, immigrants skilled. Yeah. But it was it was so frustrating. So and then I got okay. Um, and I went to another teacher at the time and I also got very frustrated. And I'm like going, I can't do this. <laughs> and I went back to the receptionist. I'm like going, 
you know, your teachers are really unbelievable. It's so arrogant of them to say certain things. And it's so, so gutsy and of you to say that. That's gutsy. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so the receptionist looked at me going like, oh, but you know, look at the results, all the teachers that we have, you know, created really good results at the end, like all the students are able to get, you know, um, good grades to pass. I was like, but this <laughs> is the thing, right? All these, all these students you're talking to are adults and you don't think that they didn't put the effort themselves to actually get that A results yes. or, you know, the results. Why are you saying that as a teacher? Sure. The teachers has a combination, like a contribution to that result, but you're not recognizing the fact that the student has the motivation to do better too. And I would, that think, really missed myself. <laughs> I would so. think that these students were motivated to learn the language so they could learn how to cuss out their teachers in Norwegian. <laughs> exactly. This sounds like a ter- so. Seriously, this sounds like a terrible place. But that right there is a perfect example of how it's not always this smooth transition from refugee status or immigrant status and into society here as a contributing member of the Norwegian society. That's not an easy path for a lot of people. No, and there's, little, there's, hinder, there's hindrances like that and many other things uh, that we meet. And that is the story that needs to be told. Yeah, yeah exactly. And because of I witnessed that and I was... You know, it took me such a long time to kind of get over it. You know, I remember like I was so angry. I was writing this blog post um, on Facebook about that particular experience. And I remember people were supporting me and saying, like, keep going and everything. But yeah. I was I was drained because I think, you know, it's tiring. I often <laughs> it is tiring. And I think I, I tell people like, you know, if I had the chance to write my book, I would call it The Onion. Because my life is like an onion, really. If you cut through it, it's like it's often like one story after another, a lot of sort of drama, but it's kind of life experiences. So let me just explain why that is. Because yeah, please, um, my my mother got really sick um, at the end of the year of my final year in university. So she had some chromatin neuron disease (ALS). Okay. So she only had about two to five years life expectancy after diagnosis. Um, and also my mother was abusive. <laughs> so wow. I had a lot of my friends like, going, how can you take care of your mother who abused you? And I'm like, that's F- kind of physical um, abuse, mental abuse, a duty. I'm sorry. Both. Okay. Yeah. Both. Yeah. So physical and, and, and mental. So, so then I had to, you know, and that was at a time um, where I met my daughter's father and, you know, we're actually engaged, but then we kind of was off and then, it was kind of like my whole entire life seemed to collapse at that time. Um, and the t- by the time my mother passed away, I found out I was pregnant um, and my family didn't want me to keep the baby. You were in England um, at this was, time, right? Yeah, this was in England at the time when that happened. And that was when I decided that I'll move over here to Norway then because I feel like I had my daughter's father's support and his family's support. But not long afterwards, I realized that he left me for another woman, uh, uh, which meant that I had, I had to deal with being But you had already here. moved here. You had already moved here by then. Yeah, yeah I moved oh, here. Boy. I gave birth to my daughter, you know, and that was about a year or so after my daughter was, you know, born. Um, and it was such a terminal time. And so when I have all these accumulation and then I'm like, okay, now I have the separation to deal with and I can't return back home because of the international rules and everything. Um, and then I'm like, okay, then I need to kind of pick myself up and I need to go and learn Norwegian. I need to get yeah. a job now. I need to get yeah. a job. But I didn't expect that going back into the Norwegian language system was going to be hit by this type of biasness and this episodes yeah. of me 
you know, um, let me ask you, let me ask you just for a purpose of timeline, what year, what year was this when you realized you were pregnant and you had moved to Norway? That was in 2010. 2010. Okay. So my, my mother passed away in, in December, 2010. And that was the time that I was realized that, um, I was pregnant. Okay. And then I moved to Norway in 2011 around okay. March, you know, very early in the year. Yeah. So, okay. <clears throat> so yeah. That's a lot of challenges, a lot of changes, um, a lot of adjustments to be made. Yeah. In a very, very short time. In it's a like very five, short six, time, eight. all at once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 also, I remember like screaming to my friends, like, I hope this stops now. <laughs> I remember screaming to people like, God, I have no idea what you're trying to put me through, but this has to stop now. I, I don't think I can take it anymore. So <laughs> But isn't it isn't it interesting that so many times in our so many times in my life anyway, where where I think this is it, I can't take anymore, and then all of a sudden I'm taking more. It's growth. You grow through, you know, you add another layer to the onion. <laughs> uh, exactly. You rise to the occasion. Of course, everyone has their struggles and some people don't rise out of their struggles uh, uh, into a better situation. But it looks like you've done exactly that. I, I hope so. I mean, like, I, it's not to say that I don't feel extremely down. You know, I sure. I do suffer from from depression, anxiety. So sometimes it hits me really badly. And, you know, I, my, my mind how do you deal with starts that? spinning. And how do you yeah, deal with uh, it when that happens? Um, well, I take some time off. Uh, I literally tell, um, if I know like it's getting really bad, then I tell um, people around me that I can't do with this, like the projects I'm doing, because I, I have a lot of projects running at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I said, I need at least a week off. Um, I have gone to the DPS system. So the DPS system here is basically yeah. you go to your you know, GP and then you, you try and get a um, a therapist and, and all that. So that was a the system there, but I found like having been through the system, it doesn't always help. Um, because I find that <laughs> there's another layer to this. The, the therapists are also slightly biased or don't have the global competence yeah. and aren't able to help me. Yeah. So I feel like ugh, I have to save myself here. <laughs> you know? Have you had, so, have you had male therapists or female therapists or both? And do you notice a difference? I usually go for female. Uh, okay. I don't go for male. No. Um, because I don't think a guy would truly understand what I've gone through unless it's a, you know, a woman, I think. Yeah. Um, and I just feel more comfortable with, with female therapists uh, in general. Um, I did actually find a very good one, but she was a private one. Um, so I didn't, I actually kind of went through a few <laughs> few sessions with her and then I have to say, sorry, I, d- I just really don't have any more money yeah. left. Um, it's I, so I expensive. To, oh. It, it is. And even a DPS is, is cheaper, but you, the quality is quite different sometimes. So yeah. uh, I'm still struggling now to really figure out, you know, should I go to private now since I have this, you know, a part-time job uh, or should I go through the DPS system and trust the system again? You know, um, but yeah. When you're in the middle of periods of anxiety and depression, does the fact that you own a startup and specifically the type of startup that you do it's you know a a, a news organization does that help to pull you out of those periods of anxiety and depression or does the fact that you have this project you this business this startup does that pull you further down maybe you know i'm depressed i'm tired and i have so much work that i'm supposed to be doing but i'm not doing it 
That's does, really, yeah, that's really, really good question, actually, John. Um, I'm, so, I'm a decent, I'm a decent podcast host. <laughs> Uh, you are John. Um, so, so the thing, the thing was, is like, um, the startup actually pulled me down. Uh, I, I'll tell you the reason why it's not so much as, you know, it, it was a very good mission that I wanted to take part in. But the fact is what I, what I didn't realize what I was just experiencing only until, um, about a year or so after when I went to the U.S. Um, I managed to get a scholarship to go to the U.S. Uh, to attend a conference. So the conference was an intersection between diversity technology um, and uh, was it, it, diversity journalism and technology. Yeah, so that's sort of those three points there. And they had a really interesting workshop that I attended and it's from the DART Center. Now the DART Center is a center for journalists who um, had to cover trauma or okay. going through trauma themselves. And I didn't realize that the the amount of stories that I was covering, especially around refugees and immigrants, and, oh. and so I was experienced that what they call secondary depression, which that the tragedies were coming over and over that it has an impact on me mentally. Um, so when I had that workshop, I realized that I wasn't taking care of my mental health yeah. um, because I was just kept pushing and pushing, and I was kind of spiraling out of control in my mind. So then I, when I came back and I, you know, continued to push on with a couple of investigation that I was doing, but then I had to take a year off. Um, so I did take a year off a from year. my, my startup. Wow. Um, yeah, wow. because it was, I was, I realized that in those five or so years, I was covering nonstop tragedy after tragedy. And even though I wanted to find a solution, there was no solution being provided. There was no one there helping um, the challenges that I was trying to write about. Um, so, so yeah, so they basically, I took some time off and that was how I got this part-time job um, and had to switch, not switch, but it, it's kind of took a bit of a break from covering this, this side of things. I ended up covering about plastic pollution instead, you know, okay. environmental stuff. So that's an yeah. interesting thing to think about that reporting on trauma or being involved with other people's trauma can actually um, bring trauma on oneself. And um, that's something that I've kind of felt on me with my work as a police officer before. Um, I've, I worked with Barnavan uh, for, for several years, uh, child welfare services for those non-Norwegians. Um, and even now with my podcast on some of the people I've, I've, I've spoken with, and then you start to, I mean, if, if unless you're a robot, when you speak with people like that, it it you take some of that in and you reflect on it, and you apply some of that to your own life, and it can be there's there's a reflective quality to other people's trauma. If you have any kind of sympathy, empathy, heart, you're going to feel mm -hmm. some of that. So I would imagine when you're doing that time after time, day after day, case after case, as a journalist. There is an effect. There is treatment that probably has to be considered, treatment or therapy, um, at the very least, talking about these things with someone. But then you're bound by certain confidenti confidentiality and ethical restraints that you can't really talk about everything. So... There's yeah, how dilemma. did you deal with that? Actually, I'm I'm curious. You know, obviously you've been in that situation. How did you deal with it yourself? So. Um, for years, I didn't deal with it. Um, <clears throat> I was a police officer during an age where um, the psychological fallout on police officers was not, 
you know, we kind of had our own in-house um, gallows humor. And that was kind of our way with with deal. And I'm not saying every day was a was a tragedy and trauma, but but there were things that happened. But we would just joke about it and with that gallows humor, and then just kind of move along. Um, you you just kind of had to tough it out. So that was the age when I you know when I was a police officer. It was during that age. So a lot of those things I, I just didn't deal with. <clears throat> but then there's also things in my past, you know pre-police officer you know I was in the U.S. Marines um, there's family issues and things like that and again for years I just didn't deal with it mm. and I think the the main catalyst for now I had started to think on these things and deal with these, these things uh, before this catalyst uh, uh, occurrence but I think it was when I lost my son in November 2019, I lost him to a heroin overdose. That is when I really started thinking, man, you gotta, you, you've got to work through these things. Um, such a tragic background. You know, my, I, I was separated from my son for years um, because of moving here. I didn't have to be separated from him because I moved here. But, you know, I wasn't the only parent. I'll just leave it at that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and when I lost him... Of course, that pushed me. I mean, I dive bombed into a, a depression, a period of uncertainty. I just didn't know what to do and how to deal with that, because this happened in the middle of uh, that relationship being repaired with my son, and then he and then he overdoses like that. Um, and that's actually the thing that pushed me into doing this podcast, <clears throat> because. I started thinking, you know, how can I, how do, how do I deal with this? I didn't know how to do, I still don't know how to deal with that. And my wife, my, my Snoopy, as I call her, she told me, she says, why don't you start talking to people who, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically is why don't you start talking to people who inspire you or who motivate you? Or why don't you, you know, find ways to tackle these issues head on. Mm. And that caused me to start this podcast and invite people who do exactly that, inspire me, motivate me, or, um, you know, people who, you know, mental health experts, um, uh, people like yourself who rise and meet the challenge and, 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 and progress through life because I wasn't mm -hmm. progressing through life. I was depressed and I wasn't doing anything. Mm -hmm. So I would say that this podcast um, and the conversations I have with people like yourself, that's my medicine. Now, I still don't know how to deal with the loss of my son. Mm -hmm. um, I still have things that I need to work through. But having conversations like this with, I mean, you inspire the heck out of me. You motivate <laughs> the heck out of me. Um, you know, okay. I want to spread my podcast out so that mm -hmm. it can be a, it can be a catalyst for change for people. And I'm not saying I'm some kind of a guru, but I'm hoping that the conversations I have with people can stimulate um, creativity, stimulate uh, and motivate people who are listening, because that's what I needed when I lost my son. And instead of sitting passively. I was motivated by my wife to be active in finding mm. that motivation and inspiration and, and new ways of thinking. So this is my 
pill. This is my therapy. This is my, this is my medicine against that desire. And it is a desire still to be depressed and unmotivated and just sit around and do nothing. Hmm. I think I, I resonate with that because um, there are stories that I covered where, you know, it's really interesting to see um, the decisions people make um, at time of darkness. Yes. Um, there are so many undocumented um, refugees or immigrants that I've covered and got to meet um, on a day-to-day basis because it was um, uh, a documentary photography. So I was with them a lot. Um, I was literally sitting on the streets with them. I was um, trying to understand their mentality, you know, um, and I got to meet one, it was interesting because there was one who was on a hunger strike, you know, he, he didn't get his rights and um, he's basically living in a prison in Norway. He okay. was not able to return back to Iran, but he, he's stuck here basically. And then he has these bunch of friends around him who are all undocumented. And I got to meet some of these of his friends. And one of them was really interesting for me because the way he talks to me, it's not this... I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep going, you know, even though, um, I get so many rejections, I don't know how many times he's got rejected. I think it must've been like, God knows 50, 60, you know, these were high numbers when he's telling me, but then the way he was trying to survive, he wasn't, you know, he showed up, you know, quite cleaned up and everything. It wasn't like, um, you know, very shabby or anything. It was really like this resilience that I got to see in him. And that really, really inspired me. And to this day, it kind of reminds me of those people who really have nothing. Um, And I remind myself that fact that I'm very lucky. I have a roof above my head. I have a passport and everything. You know, I I shouldn't take these things for granted, but he was, he was working black, you know, he, he needs to sustain himself. um, And he just kept going in and out. (laughs) Let me just, let me just, let me just interrupt for my, for my uh, American (laughs) listeners, working black means, Working under the table, just yes. so they know, just so they understand. Yeah, working, he's, he's a black guy. Of course, he's working black. <laughs> yeah, we call him working black over here. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so, 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 yeah. Um, I I know pretty much the spots where people work black, uh, yeah. and I have and I have no problems with that. To be honest with you, because I think that These if people the government are trying to can't survive. help them, These people are trying exactly, to survive. exactly, exactly. I have no nothing wrong with it because I get really annoyed when I see. Uh, newspaper covering this is like, oh, this is bad and everything. Yes, in some cases it is because, you know, they don't have the rights. You know, if if they need protection, they're not going to get the protection. But the problem is their status. They don't yeah. have a status in Norway. Yeah. So what can you do? You yeah. know, um, OK, they beg on the streets. So then what happens? You know, people were begging on the streets and then um, the Norwegian government decided that, oh, we should have a band. People should not be begging along the streets. So you're kind of really pushing them over the edge. Yeah. Do you want them to kill themselves at the end of the day? Because that's how I felt, you yeah. know, because I've, I've met these people. I've seen these people, how they struggle on the streets. You know, uh, there were times and again where they're sleeping on the streets and they get this stuff stolen, yeah. you know, yeah. and they have to start all over again. You know, to, that is to, a huge that- traumatic uh, tr- and tragic event. Uh, think about that. You're living on the streets and everything you have is gone. Yeah, exactly. And you have to start all over again. Yeah. And of course, there are charity organizations out there helping them, you know, with food and some of the basic needs, but they don't have anything stable. You know, they're going from one place to another. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I think back on those stories and go like, that resilience needs to be told. I, I need to say, you know, I, I need to kind of, 
I'm kind of an active person at a point sure. where I get really, really depressed. At one point, I'm like, I need to take one action. And often it's just me going out there writing or talking to people. And that um, lifts, and lifts that, you out of depression. It, yeah, it does. You know, even though the stories I cover, it makes me sad, yeah. but it also lifts me at the same well, because, time. It's, it's yeah, kind of but like I, I get that. Yeah. And that's what, that's the whole yeah. thing with my podcast. It's making me act. It's making me stay active. It's, it's putting me, yeah, I'm, I'm out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing something. Otherwise I would just be sitting on the couch being depressed about losing my son. Yeah. Which that then leads to being depressed about other things, maybe things that, that I haven't thought about in years. You know, depression leads to more depression if you let it. If you, if you stay in that state of mind long enough, you're going to get depressed about more things than the thing you're actually depressed about. Yeah, exactly. And I think like for me, it's, I have recurring sort of PTSD. So sometimes like episodes from the past of my childhood um, disrupts me. From so the then abu- I realized. From the abuse? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was kind of weird because so so just about a month or so ago i had a, such an episode something that i didn't even recall but it just it was a flashback that came right at me and it paralyzed me um and i realized that i need to sit with it i i need to you know run through that that point in my life again and wondering what was i was feeling and how i can kind of get past it because sometimes you need to go through it to actually really uh progress i think that was the point that it was, it was a kind of strange, it was something strange because I remember it was um, a time when I went extremely angry with my mom um, at that point. Um, and she was trying to walk out. She was quite emotional and manipulative and she wanted me to act in a certain way. Yeah. Um, and I remember like she stormed out the house and she was trying to stand in the middle of the road. Um, oh. Now I stayed, I stayed at home. Uh, it was something that I've sort of forgotten about. It just came back up, you know, and um, I remember I had to make the decision whether to go out after her or stay at home uh, because I knew like this is another thing that she was trying to get sympathy from yes, me, but also yeah. to kind of control me in this yeah. sort of way and say, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill yeah. myself type of thing. And I'm like going, I was around, I don't know, I don't know, 20 or something, 19, 20, um, maybe 21 at the time. And and then I remember my my sister and my brother ran after her, but I stayed at home. I decided that I'm going to stay put. I'm going to stay put because I knew that she wasn't really going to do it mm-hmm. um, because she's done it so many times. It was just open yeah. threats. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want her to feel like she had any control of me. If I had walked out of that house of ours, she would know like, ah, I got her. Got her. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I didn't want to do thumb. that. So. Yeah, exactly. So, so it was kind of, it was strange that this, this piece of history in my past and my memory came back up again. And I started really thinking, digesting it through and going, okay, maybe it's, it's something that I need to remind myself that I've gone through something. Um, I overcame it. Now I just need to keep going. And so it's just stuff like that, that happens now and then with me that I do collapse. You know, I actually had, after the separation, I was extremely depressed for at least a couple of years. I was literally bed bound. Let's put it that way. I did help my daughter. You know, I was able to do uh, the functional stuff, you know, with my do- when my daughter's back with me, I take her to school and then I come back and make her food and everything. Mm-hmm. But the majority of the time when she's at school, I'm at home in bed. You yeah. know? And that was a time when um, my landlady, she was extremely worried. Uh, I remember she literally came up one day and she literally kind of went into my bedroom without you know, she did was knocking, but she was, she was extremely worried that I was do do something bad with myself. And then she sat on the side of my bed and saying, Hey, I, I, 
you know, I've seen you always in bed, you know, how, what are you doing? How are you and everything? And I was like going, yeah, I'm just, I just need to, to just sleep. I, wow. I just, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything right now. Um, and then she told me a story about her husband um, at that point. She said that, you know, the reason why I, I came to see you is because I don't want um, this to happen again. And I said, huh? And, you know, it's like my husband killed himself, you know? Oh. Um, so it's like, oh, okay. And I, and it kind of got to the point where I wasn't even suicidal. I mean, those thoughts did come to mind, but I had my daughter, you know, and, yes. and I don't want to, yes. and that, that is a force, you know, that kind of keeps me going. Um, and so when she said that to me, I, I realized that maybe I'm actually expiring out of control in the sense that I'm not able to get back up again. Yeah. It's been about a year now and she's really worried. Yeah. And obviously I, I managed, you know, obviously I was, um, I had support from the NAV system. Uh, so they were paying the rent and everything. So I think I was kind of lucky in that sense because I was able to collapse. Had yes. I not had that support, then I had to keep going, keep going. Um, but I had that year or so to kind of really collapse. Um, but I kind of picked myself up again, um, very but this slowly. Was a, but, but, but you're, you're, you're talking about a pretty solid year of constant depression. Yeah. That's a yeah. long time to be depressed and inactive. Yeah, it was. Um, and I, I tried to pick myself up now, now and then, but it was, it was hard. You know, sure, I went, to, I went, sure. I, I was, I was seeing a therapist at the time. I was seeing, I think there must have been a couple of therapists because I changed. Um, but it was, I'm still trying to wonder how I got out of it to be honest with you, but it was, it was such a long, it was such a long time. And I realized it was a time where my, he, my, my head was processing everything. Sure, and I think it, yeah. my mind was needing that time because it was like, you know, near the end of my university years, I was confronting my mother's, you know, abusiveness. And I was the very first in the family who confronted her and left home, mm. you know, and lived outside, you know, um, and then it escalated uh, to the point where she was focusing her abuse to my siblings. Um, and then I had to kind of go back home. So this was an episode where I got a call around four or five in the morning. Um, and it's from my aunt in Hong Kong. Um, and she was telling me on the phone, like, you need to go home now. I was like, why? What's wrong? It's like, your mother's in hospital. I was like, why is my mom in hospital? It's like, um, your father, um, you know, pushed her and, and hurt her. And so I was like, well, how did that came about? It's like, because your mother picked up a knife, uh, a kitchen knife to hurt your brother and your father <sighs> stopped her, um, because my brother was standing on my side and I realized, Oh boy. Oh yeah. And that was when I was in the student hall at the time, you know, and, and I said, I didn't want to go back, <laughs> but I had to do it for my siblings because I realized that whatever I was feeling at the time, I need to go back. Um, and so when a call was off, you know, I was kind of mentally preparing myself what I need to say and what I need to do, because in our culture, if you are apologizing to your parents, you kneel down with a cup of tea you know, uh, saying, yeah. I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's kind of a tradition thing, to, yeah. you know, um, to, to say you're sorry. So I knew that that was something I needed to do. Um, so as soon as I got back there, um, I went on my knees, I took a cup of tea and I told my mother, I was sorry for being disobedient and everything, even though inside of me, I didn't, 
believe I was. Um, but that was just to keep the peace in the family because at least she feel like she won a little bit, you know? Um, and I've been doing that, you know, every night I would go back for dinner and I go back to my student hall and trying to finish up my very final year at the university. So I, I wanted to ask, how, how did, uh, how did this affect your schooling at that time? Were you able to, to stay focused and finish your schooling in the time that you had originally allotted for that? Or did it, did the whole pro- schooling process get extended because you had to deal with things at home? Um, it did affect me. Um, it was very hard to focus. Um, a lot of the, um, but it didn't extend the length of your schooling. No, I didn't want it to because, um, I was actually already tired of university. Uh, I was very much that I just want to get this over and done with. Um, I didn't want to extend another year because it meant that I'll be in debt again. (laughs) So that speaks, uh, comparatively, see, cause I'm, I'm comparing my situation with you and, and, and I knew I was right in thinking that you are someone who can motivate me and inspire me because I had a similar situation. I had a full scholarship to play football, uh, not soccer, but American football. Um, and I gave that up after mm-hmm. the first two years because of trouble at home. And I thought that I would be able to, to, I don't know what I was thinking. I thought I would be able to help. Turns out I didn't. Parents still got divorced and things still happened. But looking back on that, I mean, I did what I thought was right, but I wish I would have just realized. I, I don't think I had the maturity to understand that that was their issue in their marriage. And there was nothing, it didn't have anything to do with me. There was nothing I could do. So I'm, I'm, I'm comparing the situations there. And, and uh, I mean, I it's think a it's hard, a, t- well, it's a hard, right. it's, it's, it's a hard decision to make at that age. But I, I see that you had uh, even at that age and even with all of the stress of going to school, you still had the awareness and the maturity to s- keep your focus on your schooling in spite of what was happening at home. That's admirable. Yeah, I guess it's, I guess like for me, like at at least, at least let's agree that you were tough, you were tougher, you were tougher with your situation than I was with mine. (laughs) I think like for me, it's always a balance of what I'm going to lose. You know, um, one Mm. of the things I didn't want to lose was, um, a potential career that I had that could get me out of the situation. Um, one of the things that I think what also drummed into me was my, I lived in a, um, a very poor situation, you know, um, we were poor. My parents saved up a lot of money for us to go to a private school. Um, okay. and what kind and of work did of, they do? They worked in a takeaway. So, uh, this is very typical of a lot of British born Chinese. So the parents own a takeaway and then you live above it. So I that see. was kind yeah. of how it is. Yeah. Um, so, so it's not like a lot of money all the time. They, they work long hours and, you know, they own, they own the restaurant. Yeah. They, yeah. Uh, it's, it's like a takeaway. Okay. It's not so much as a restaurant. It's just like right. one of those, when you come into the counter, you buy your yeah. stuff and you leave. But, but your parents owned um, it. Yes. My parents okay. owned it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, so so for me it was this, and even now, like I'm in 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 a situation in my personal life where I'm looking at how much I'm gonna lose. So I do have the personal, you know, thing going on right now, and um, and I know I have all these projects, and you know, I have my work. You know, how much am I gonna lose with that work? You know, because yes. I'm freelancing, so every hour of my work counts yeah, towards paying my yeah. bills. So even though I'm saying, okay, I'm gonna allow myself, you know, 
these three days or this one week, you know, it means that I'm able to, um, able not to work at those hours, like in this one week to take care of myself, but the next week I must come back up again and keep working because I need to earn the money. You know, how do you you work through that? Do you have a schedule where you say, I'm going to work, I'm going to work my butt off (laughs) for a month and then I'm going to take five days off or do you just keep working until you pretty much can't anymore. And then you're kind of forced to take a break. How do you, how do you arrange that for yourself? Yeah. So I, I try to actually put a lot of breaks in my work life anyway, you know, I schedule in like, you know, just listen, I would actually be having one hour and I'll listen to the same song over and over again. Um, I'll be on a sofa or something, you know, on my, on my desk, I'll just listen I'm gonna to send you. Over. I'm gonna send you a spot. I'm gonna send you a Spotify link to one of my songs. You can listen to me sing for you. Okay, um, so I do that because it regulates my emotions as well. It kind of gives me that that headspace to kind of, you know, work through whatever was on my mind and just kind of be myself at that point. Um, but I haven't been able to do that because I had so much stuff going on and I wasn't. I became. I realized that my I was getting irritated uh, about a lot of different things. Um, and that was the point where, just like you said, it's like this point where my, my body and my mind cannot deal with anything more and I have to force a break. I have to force at least a week break. Um, and, um, and then, you know, say I'll be back on again and and the following week to kind of get back into. So I'm often looking at the situation and often I actually have these lists, like every year I have a list of personal goals that I said, I want to reach them because I need to reach them. Yeah. Um, and if I have any personal problems or anything that kind of comes in the obstacle as a way, then I often look back at that list again and going, how do, how do I get there? How yeah. do I get there from A to B? How, how, what do I need to take care of now? So it's, know, a constant re- it's a constant reevaluation of tasks that you have to do to tasks that you had planned to do. And you just, it, it, it ebbs and flows. You're not stuck you know, in yeah, a, your, your calendar is fluid in other words. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, cause I, I have a lot of these projects going on. And so sometimes I feel like I've, um, I feel guilty that I kind of, uh, haven't fulfilled my duties on some of these projects, but I also explain to them because I think at the end of the day, I want to live a very balanced life. I want to be happy. I want to be able to have the energy to keep going. Yes. But if you, are coming in with the empty festival. If you don't have the energy, you're not actually contributing to anything. So yeah. there's no point in me to feel guilty about it because I know like, okay, you, if I have a boss or if I have someone in the group saying, Hey, but you know, I know you got the personal things, but you know, you need to still going, we still need you common. We still need it. I'm like, I always say, no, I'm sorry, because I'm not contributing anything in this project. If I don't sort myself out right now. See, and so, that's a, that's a hard lesson to learn. I fell into that trap. There was a time a few years ago where I owned uh, three gyms uh, up in northern Norway. We were living up north at the time, and they were spread out over like maybe five hours driving time. And I enjoyed the work, and mm-hmm. I just worked and worked and worked. And all of a sudden... And, and I'm not talking, it was something that I built up to. Just all of a sudden, I couldn't work anymore. I was burnt yeah. out. I mean, I hit a brick wall. And it's like, okay, I can't do this. I've got to put in some time towards my... And a funny thing is, owning three gyms, and yet I had no time to train. Isn't that something? <laughs> I was in the worst shape of my life 
at that time when I owned those gyms. But it was a lesson that I had to learn that I had to put in. I had to plug in some planned relaxing time, you know, and I kind of would do that where I would work as long as I had to, as much as I had to for two weeks. And then I would take three days off and just be available by telephone for clients and, and employees. But it's a lesson that I think a lot of startup people and a lot of uh, self-employed people have to learn. You've got to put in that, that, that me time, that relaxation time. I sent you a text, by the way, while we were talking. Oh, you did? Yep. That's, a, that's, a, that's a link to one of my songs. You can use that to relax. Cool. I'll listen to this. That's really nice. I'm often out for looking at some, um, listen to new new songs. Uh, I feel like, I don't know, I'm not really into the popular songs. I'm often uh, looking for those, like, those gems, you know. I, yeah, I need to really yeah. discover them, you know. Well, Sometimes I discover them, so I'm like, ah. Good. Check, so. check me out. I've got four singles out there. I sent you one of them. <laughs> okay. you go ahead and check them out. I will do. <laughs> a little will self-promotion. Do. Who else is going to promote me? I've got to, <laughs> I got to do it myself. So Of course. And I, and I think like this is the thing with self-promotion as well. I think people get it wrong sometimes because when people, I, I've seen people react to people self-promoting themselves and people are like, oh, oh, they're just showing off. They're just bragging or something like that. But I think like, why can't you come to this perspective of say wow he's done something yes. because if you know the creative process it's really hard to say you got an idea and then execute it yeah it's yeah. two different things um and i find like people who often say oh they're just bragging about something sometimes it is it could be is sometimes i find like sometimes like um there are times when i'm like is it necessary to say this but then again it's like this is your well, achievement you know go for yeah, it yeah exactly know? and it's only bragging you know bragging is a negative thing self-promotion is a positive thing and i think it's only bragging mm. when you're talking about achievements that don't really exist <laughs> <laughs> and some people do that um yeah. but but if you have achieved something and if you are dependent on your achievements bringing you an income Exactly. Then, then self-promote away. I mean, just, you know, go for it, talk about it uh, and, and push it out there and promote it because it, it's it's what sustains you financially. So, I just uh, want people to know who you are too. Yeah, I think it's, it's yeah. how people know, it's like, um, you know, there's a project that I'm working on called She Witness and it it is dealing, I'm working with two other NGOs dealing with uh, domestic violence and I decided to um, go out with my story, you know, having a mother who was abusive and everything. Um, there were, you know, feedbacks where like, are you sure you want to display yourself out like that? You know? Um, and I'd be like, well, I don't see why I cannot because it's, what I'm trying story. to say yeah. is my story at the same. I, I, I'm owning my story. And also I'm saying that, um, you know, I, I'm working on this project because I've gone through it, but it doesn't make me less. It yes. doesn't make me yes. less competent. It doesn't make me feel like um, I would take things too personal because that's right. the problem. Like you still have people with a mindset that because it happened to you, you cannot deal with that particular challenge, that issue, and you want to tackle it. And I say that's completely wrong. Yeah. And it's purely because I've gone through it. Um, I have a different perspective than say someone who's not gone through it and decided to set up a, a project on, yeah. on this. Like, Hey, I just out of the blue, I wanted to tackle domestic violence now, but why? <laughs> you know, the question is, I think so. people, I think people respond to the personal story. I think people respond to me talking about my son dying from a heroin mm. overdose. Um, it's not uncomfortable for me at all to speak about that. I thought it would be. Um, uh, but the first time I mentioned it on my podcast, it's like, Hey, you know, I'm just, I'm just telling my story. Maybe once people hear that story and they see or hear 
how I'm dealing with it that might inspire somebody that might save somebody's life. Exactly. So yeah, self-promotion, you know, telling the story, telling the personal things. Um, I think I have to wait until a couple of family members die before I get into details about my childhood and all that stuff. (laughs) But, but, uh, but I, I, I am a believer in putting oneself out there uh, in a constructive way, because you never know whose life you're going to touch. You never know who will, whose life you can save by telling your story of trauma, whether it's depression or anxiety or, or losing a loved one, whatever it may be. There's, it doesn't, it does no harm to tell one story. No. And I was attracted to your story, actually, you know, oh. that's kind of how we met, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, the, because that was when in Monaco you had that, um, uh, event coming up and there was just like this uh, hmm. graphic card that was that talked about you and I was reading through that and I found that wow what an amazing person here you know he must what have did gone it say? I didn't lot. even I didn't even hear I didn't I didn't even see what it was I, I submitted well, well, it, a few a few bullet points to Rawa but I don't know what she what she used and what she wrote so <laughs> Well, she, it wrote about like your your background in the sense that you were from the U.S. You joined the the police force and um, um, and you worked with you know um, child care services and you know, child uh, yes. welfare services yeah. and um, and then and then it also mentioned the fact that your son died of heroin in two thousand nineteen. Yeah. And I was like, wow, okay. And then I and then the, the next part of it was like, oh, you have this podcast and you did you know looking for inspiration and yeah. all this type of thing. And I thought you are a really interesting person, but also I realized that you've gone through something and I want to know as in the same way as you were trying to get motivation and inspiration. I often get, I also learn from people who's gone through tough things as yes, well yeah. uh, because it, it, it kind of, because you hear my story, like I've gone through this, but it doesn't mean that I won't fall again. And when I fall right. again, sometimes I forget, you know, that's that a I've good gone point through to something. Make. That's <laughs> a good point to make. People talk about, yeah, you must've gone through a few things. You you said that just now, but, and, and yes, but I'm still going through, some of those things are not resolved yet. And that's exactly. what's a little exciting and very scary, a little exciting, but very scary. But, but that scariness, you know, I, I, I thrive on a challenge. I thrive on the challenge of finding out how to deal with some of these things. Yeah. I don't know if that's, relatable to a lot of people but i do thrive on that challenge at the same time as it's heavy at the same time as it be, maybe that's why i'm a, I'm a power lifter maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's why i just figured out i just figured something out <laughs> i i think it's like is i realize like with life it's like how much of the weight can you carry you know because i realize that everyone that i know has gone through something mm. um you know some kind of baggage something that was quite tragic in their life and everything and how do you sort of rise above it in a certain way but it's, it's kind of like how do you cope with it because there's yeah. something that i've often asked myself because i've gone through so many different things and i'm still trying to figure out you know like this pdsd moments and i'm like completely like oh i thought i resolved that you know yeah. and then it's come yeah. back again and it's like okay maybe there's something that's unresolved inside of me and it's not the part uh, or maybe there's a trigger during that week and then i didn't realize it and it just came back again um so it's, it's constantly trying to you know figure out and I think that there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out yes. I think a lot of people like we're kind of moving away from like okay I want a nine-to-five job I want to have the stable home and everything but it's really now a very personal development you know very mindful of uh, who you are and how do you, who you want to be because I think like especially when you look at a lot of the su- suicidal rates yes. um, and it's amongst the younger generation I think it's just that they're losing a certain purpose and they may have gotten a lot of 
things. I think that there is something there. Why we're we getting there? Because even with me at my age, I'm still trying to figure out like what is the purpose in my life, and you know, why is the meaning? Because it's very easily to kind of go down the slippery slope. Because yes. you know, I just flicked in you know the news on my Facebook. Everything was so sad and tragic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It got me really depressed. I actually literally had to switch it off at one point because it's like the problem is so much bigger than myself in knowing how to fix that. There's yeah. nothing I can do there, yeah. you know? Well, so. what I find myself doing, and I don't know if it works, I, I guess it works for me because it makes me feel good. Um, I look at the news and I see, yes, there is a lot of ugliness out there. There's a lot of depressing stuff going on. But my thought is, what can I infuse or inject into that that will give people hope? And there is another important aspect of my podcast, you know, the things I talk about and the people who I talk with, I'm hoping that it will give hope, not just to me, but to anyone who may be listening. So yeah, it's an ugly world out there, but there's also a lot of beauty. And what are we doing? And what are we doing as individuals to bring that beauty to light so that not only that we can see it more clear, more clearly, but so that others who are just looking at the darkness might see that bright little, you know, beautiful little uh, person or that beautiful little incident or this example of humanity. Yeah. No, exactly. Like, um, it's why I I go towards constructive journalism because that kind of grounds me back again to to this hope and everything. Um, It kind of allows me like, okay, where is the other side of the story of this that could be good, you know? Um, And uh, there's something else I wanted to say. Um, I think it was... As a journalist, we often have to face um, sadness and tragedy and, you know, be a witness. That's something I want to say. We are a witness to the stuff that is happening in the world and society that often is bad. And I think when you say you're a powerlifter, I think that that's kind of where we are. You know, we kind of have to face these because we know, like, if no one else is facing it, we are the ones who could actually face it and actually be able to lift other people out. Yeah from that because over the over the years when i have been very open about my own story and you know how i got out of depression and things like that i do have a younger generation of of girls coming towards me and saying how did you do it and i would have a coffee session with them and Uh, i realized that mentoring you're mentoring them is is in some ways it is and it's is is they as because i never really even thought about that because i really wanted to tell people this is what i've gone through this is what i you know, I'm still struggling, but I overcame it. And this is where I'm heading. Um, I re- honestly don't really anticipate anything afterwards. It was only until there are moments where people were coming up to me and they're asking me loads of questions about yeah. how I overcame things. Yeah. And which is why your podcast is important because people are looking for those answers too. I, I truly believe that to be the case. So I think it's a combination of everything is that we are continuously working on this challenge and looking at, at the good in the world and looking yeah. for hope. And we're trying to tell people that there, there are a certain group of people who are too, trying to do good. Yeah. And I think like, for me, the wonderful thing, like working part-time at this um, ocean plastic company is that I really see a big energy force of people pulling together to try and sort out this plastic pollution. It's amazing. It's not that what, I- what's, what's the name of that organization? It's called Ogre. Ogre, yeah. 
Yeah. So it's actually、um, the name came from、um, a Japanese、uh, sailor who was lost at sea like the longest time ever.、Um, and I was、uh, just to the- gonna say that sounded very <laughs> familiar. I I、uh, I lived on Okinawa for for two years, and I really、uh, I- dove into the more specifically the Okinawan history, but of course also the the mainland Japanese history. And that、yeah. sounds familiar. And yes, I'm familiar <laughs> with that story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what how the the inspiration of this、uh, story came from because、Beautiful. this guy this guy returned back, right? Yeah, so we're saying、yeah. like the plastic that's gone into sea is going to return back to us as humanity,、um, and capturing that plastic, making sure that plastic doesn't enter back into the ocean again, you know. And so so that that was that was something that on they were dealing stuff on a systemic level、okay. um, that、uh, that really. Something that I really like because even with my journalism work, I'm dealing with things on a systemic level.、Yes. I'm just not looking at the symptoms. I don't. I don't want to care too much about the symptoms of what's happening in society. Like, okay, there were there are loads of youth crime,、yeah. but I want to understand like why. Why? Why is、yes. that? Is you know, and then keep asking the why. You know, this is really, really good exercise. The seven whys, because when you get to the seventh why, you probably get to the real cause of what is really happening. Yeah.、Um, and people don't have patience. People, people have patience maybe for the first why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but, so how do we, how do we overcome that? Because、uh, people are just looking at the surface of a lot of social issues and and political issues, and and again, they don't have the patience for seven whys. Barely patience for the first. What do we What do we do? How do we? I, I think it's like, especially as storytellers like us,、um, we have、um, the power in us to actually、um, understand the, all the whys, and then telling that story back to them in the best way possible. We know video is very good. We know graphics are very good. We know infographics are very good, and it's continuously creating those content to push out to get people to understand because people don't have.、Um, They all have a very short span, but you can still say a lot in this short span. You know,、um, Fox,、um, not Fox as in Fox News, but V O X Fox. They've Fox, been doing a lot, yeah, been doing a lot of these video explainer videos that are extremely good.、Um, usually, they're under about seven minutes long and explaining the whole entire system and everything. And I think we need more of that.、Yeah. I think like if, if we can have a lot more funding that goes into storytellers are doing like these explainer videos, these informative things. I think、um, we're we're At a better place,、um, I'm a little bit harsh, I think, in when it comes to <laughs> democracy. I must admit, because、um, I'm realizing that for democracy to truly happen and democratic process to really truly happen, everyone must have similar knowledge. We must be on the same page when it comes to knowledge, but that is lacking, and I'm、oh, seeing that、yes. continuously in UK and here. And the reason why people vote. Is ridiculous. Is on an emotional basis. Look at、um, look at the political situation in the United States. You have,、um, you know, Republicans make up less than thirty percent of the electorate. However, among Republicans, over seventy percent of them don't believe that Joe Biden truly won the presidency. And that right there, I believe, is because there are two completely different. Sources of information. There's two completely different interpretations of what is true. It's、Absolutely. amazing.、And、it's amazing. It's polarization because、yes. if you look at media, that is what it does. Because with personalized、um, ads and everything, there they you know in media and social media, and you know they can tell、yeah. whether you are right wing you know lenient or left wing lenient, and then they would push those contents towards you. So maybe you were just about. On the right side of politics, but they're going to push you even further yes, to the right yes, side. Yes. And 
it's, you know, Cambridge Analytica, you know, one of the you know, best investigation that came out, you know, recently talks about this, why we need to really have strict regulation in terms yes. of media. Um, and I, I'm going to really see how this plays out because I know um, recently the government has, especially in Norway, has written something called the Handlingsplan, uh, yes. and in there, there is a section about media and how politicians, you know, should not be spreading hate. But how does that play out? Yeah, you know, yeah. really, because I'm still seeing, you know, we still have Sylvia Listow still talking a lot of crap in social media um, about her policies uh, regarding immigration and refugees. Um, and if people keep telling me like, oh, this is just, we need to look at this, you know, I've said, yeah, but she's looking at it through the lens of hate. Yes. She's looking at the lens yeah. of xenophobia. Yeah. Some that of the is things, the problem, some of the things so. that she says, I can't believe that she has the guts to say it because it's so obviously hateful. I, I, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it, this is normalized. So you're basically creating so much polarization. We need to stop that. So one of the things that with the Elsa Death is that we're trying to figure out how we can minimize that. I mean, even for me, um, I had this really interesting story and I managed, I got to sit down with a Trump voter actually here in Oslo many years back. And it was an extremely interesting conversation, extremely interesting because most people hate Trump voters, they can't even stand Trump voters, they can't oh. Trump. But for me, as I really want to get into the heads. I want to understand. So yeah. if you get someone from the FRP party to sit in front of me, I want to understand what made you tick. Yes. Why did you get to that point really choosing a politician who represents so much hate, really? Yeah. Um, and when I was sitting down with this Trump voter, you know, he, he was joining, the, he was with the Marines, you know, he's been fighting in Afghanistan, you know, um, he's quite patriotic and, um, but he's really smart. Yeah, you know, he's yeah. not, he's not stupid as many people think that Trump voters no. are. They're really smart people. Sure. But what he, what he had was he was frustrated with the system. He was frustrated that the system was still going slow. It doesn't matter which politician from each side coming up, you know, um, things were not changing. And Trump came with a personality that um, really looked like he was going to make things happen because he's so radical. He's yes. just, he's unlike any of the politicians, which I can't understand that attraction yeah. because we live in quite, a hierarchical society, you know, very elitist, even amongst the journalism and news industry. My yeah. God, you know, it's yeah. it's very hard for me to kind of come in because I may be not as articulate. You know, I do swear occasionally. So it's <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm not that kind of portrayal of what many people think. You know, I'm trying to break those boundaries because, you know, when you see a woman swear, they often think that, oh, she's the angry Asian yeah, woman or the right, black woman. But right. I'm like, going, I want to push that just a little bit just yeah. to see how you react. Yeah. Um, but then it's like, and then it's, it's, it's those type of things. It's like, okay, once that, you know, we, we did have some commonalities, you know, we, both of us want to have a better society, but the way we go about it is quite different. Yes. And I told him about my values. I said that the reason why I can't fit for Trump is how he dealt with those children. How did he dealt with them at those camps, yeah. you know, and not allowed, and many children died. And I, as a mother, as a woman, I cannot you know, be okay with this politician. I can understand how you feel. And I think that is the conversation we must have with a lot of these people from that far side, I think, because I do think a lot of them may have gone through something. Um, and sure, been, sure. And it's, it's really need to get to them. And also there should be a mandate on a national basis in each country that we really need to do better in our educational system. We need to do better in media. We need to do better um, at holding people accountable. If yes. you're trolling and you're saying like, I'm going to rape you, I'm going to da, 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 they need to be in jail. I oh, don't care. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we need to be really, really harsh with these because I think 
you know, as parents, we put boundaries, you know, we put boundaries to our children and telling them what is right and wrong in society, you know, in, yeah. in what they're doing, their behavior is the same thing. We need to put those boundaries, those rules down, even if you're an adult. But um, a lot of people on so, the right have gotten to this stage where anytime you try to put boundaries on anything, they claim that it's the cancel culture or that it's infringing upon free speech. Um, I find that the focus should be on beating down that way of looking at it. Mm. Um, you know, cause maybe it's not the cancel culture. Maybe it should be the consequence culture. You know, if you exactly. say, you say and do certain things, then this, that, or the other is going to happen. There's going to be a consequence and yeah. free speech doesn't mean that you can say whatever you want if it is harmful. And a lot of people Absolutely. forget that. And, um, you know, for example, Trump being banned from Facebook, at least for the next uh, six months. And a lot of people on the right are claiming that is an infringement upon his free speech. Well, Facebook is a company that can do pretty much whatever they want and choose the rules of their platform. Now, are you not for deregulation, people on the right? Okay. Mm. Facebook is just doing, they're making their rules and, and, and Trump has uh, infringed upon those rules. So he's out. It's really that simple, isn't it? So... There's a there's a discussion that I don't feel is being had to confront the right when they're making these kind of statements about these so-called infringements on free speech and this so-called cancel culture. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think mostly that kind of talk is um, in academic forums. So there, yeah. there are certain like um, professors and people that I, I follow in my Facebook group and uh, on my Facebook anyway. Um, and it's often the academics who has that knowledge and that power of words to actually counteract that. But we don't see that in mainstream media a lot. No, no. You know, they're kind of in their own little bubble here of academics well, going, this is not free speech. And, I'm trying, like, yeah. and I'm trying to have those kind of conversations on my podcast. Um, I had put up, I can't even remember what it was. Um, yeah, it was something about Facebook um, mm. keeping Trump off of their platform. And it led to like over a hundred different comments back and forth. So I chose the two main um, uh, conversationalists on my thread there. And I said, would you two, because they're throwing all kinds of stuff back. Some of it was kind of snarky and mean spirited, but for the mm -hmm. most part, they were holding, the one guy was holding himself to the left uh, mm -hmm. rhetoric. The other guy was holding himself to the pro-Trump rhetoric. I'm not even going to call it right rhetoric because the right and pro Trump is two different things. Yeah. So they were pretty much holding themselves to that. But, but again, there was a lot of nuance that was overseen in that written format on Facebook. So I got an idea. I said, Hey, would you two like to come on my podcast and we can have a panel discussion pretty much mm. where the two of you talk and debate on this issue. And I'm the, I'm the moderator. And all of a sudden they're like, Whoa, I don't, I, I don't want to do that. And it's like, well, why are you doing this online? Why are you doing this on Facebook then? Are you exactly. not, are you, are you just trying to troll? Are you just trying to look cool or something? Are you just having fun spewing out rhetoric? Or do you really want to have this conversation and possibly learn something, possibly resolve something? So I moved those two into a chat group and I was finally able to get the guy representing pretty much the right or the pro-Trump side to say, yes, I'll do it. But the guy 
on the left has not mm. said yet that he will do it. He wants a list of questions. He wants to be able to prepare and whatnot. Mm. And I'm kind of thinking, I kind of put my, my quasi journalist hat on and I started wondering, well, does this guy really believe in all the stuff he was saying in this hundred or so comments on my Facebook thread? Does he really believe that? What does he mm. need to prepare for? What does he need a list of questions and topics for? So I think we've mm. gotten into this way of talking about social issues and talking about politics that fits only online, like on Facebook and Twitter, for entertainment purposes, almost. Right. I think mm. people are just, they have this bucket full of left-wing or right-wing phrases and terms and ways of name-calling and trolling and owning, oh, I owned him you know, yeah, and I think that's what it's been reduced to. And that substantive conversation is missing. Like you said, it's the academics who are having it, but it's not coming forward on the news. And every once in a while here in Norway, you'll see a panel discussion. But again, it seems that they are just pulling up these, you know, these prefabricated lines, these prefabricated idealistic statements that don't really have any substance. Yeah. No, and I and I find like the problem is with a lot of academic is that they they can word things in their own academic, you know, realm. But you know, as journalists, we actually try to understand the complexity of things and yes. trying to uh, make it understandable in layman terms. Well, basically. exactly, and that was my and, whole and that's reason. Problematic. That yeah. was my whole reason for wanting these two, and these two have been very active on my Facebook threads. Uh, and, and that's my whole reason for wanting to bring them into the podcast and let them see, let them see facial expression, let them see new hear nuance, let this be a real discussion instead of this bullshit that people do back and forth on, on, on Facebook. Mm. I, shame on me for posting what I posted, which then stimulated to that bullshit discussion no but, you, you, but, you, but no but you wanted to understand you wanted to know because this is something i do sometimes yes, on my facebook yes, as well i wanted yes. to understand what's going on and sometimes i have comments coming in that were like ridiculous yeah. and people like on the, my chat going like why are you not firing that guy why are you not blocking that guy mm -hmm. and everything i was like no no no, no. I, I really want to know why this guy think the way he did i haven't and blocked I, I haven't blocked anyone off of facebook in years i want <laughs> i i do i i i may totally disagree i may i may think someone is a lunatic but I still am fascinated by that view. Where did it come from? What do they mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. I only block two guys. Um, most of them are white guys. Um, and when they become a little bit misogynistic ah. um, and cross the line with me, yeah. they're out. And I don't care because, you but know, see, I was actually quite someone though. But see, I even I even let things like that stay because it shows something. If 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 you if people have their eyes open. And if they're really trying to figure out things, that misogynist or that blatant racist or that condescending person, it is so, uh, it, it's a very teachable thing to view. So I, I, I even let those people stay on my line. I do. I think, I think it really depends. Like, um, it became quite aggressive. Um, I think uh, for me, like the, the, it wasn't just like a okay. very adultly mature talk. It became very aggressive, like going, oh, you, you always think you're right, Carmen, da, 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 da. you know, as, and it's like, there's no point in talking to someone who is so hyped in that certain way. There's no 
conversation to be had anymore. And for me, the blocking them is actually, okay. I'd rather have a conversation yeah. with someone else, which was a yeah. little bit more yeah. mature. And there's no reason to take uh, abuse. There's no reason to take No, abuse. exactly. Yeah. I, I'm not you're going right. to tolerate that. You yeah. know, if, if you if you step over the line, you're gone. You yeah. know, I don't care. Uh, and particularly these people are in Oslo, you know, I will meet them, but I don't care because it's like, I think I need to start making that, these boundaries. And so, yeah. That's actually something I wanted to ask you about. Now, you're not just a journalist, you're an investigative journalist, which means you dig into cases and you might be digging on ground that people don't want uncovered. Do you ever yeah. feel scared? Do you ever feel threatened? Do you ever worry about your safety? I can tell you a story of what happened uh, when I first started out. Um, the stalking case that happened, um, the perpetrator figured out who I was because yes. I was running another blog at the time. Um, and he wrote an email to me threatening me, saying I'm going to get you deported and everything. I knew that was kind of empty. But the fact that um, he actually saw me very closely with um, mm. this girl that he was stalking, um, he, he the fact that he took some time to figure yes. me out, yeah. one of the things I was very extremely worried was he will figure out where my daughter is going to go to school too. Uh, and so basically I went, I was afraid, you know, I, I literally, uh, one of the things I remember the, um, this NGO telling me was that these perpetrators want to scare you and want you to isolate you. The more isolated you are, the more endangered you are. So I ended up telling a lot of people in my network, my professional network, my, you know, my friends network and everything. Like if a guy like this guy, approaches you asking information about me do not give him any information this yeah. guy is a stalker and he's he's part of, he's a perpetrator in my case basically um and then i actually went to my daughter's banahaga which is the kindergarten and i and i explained him to the situation and it was the first time i really felt this, the community in norway have failed me um and that was when i told them if you see this man approaching the school grounds or anything please call the police and then the um, the kindergarten, um, uh, whatever the the leader, the principal in in that in that kindergarten, she was saying like, "Oh, it's not our job, you know. We're not the police. I think you need to remove your daughter from the school." You're kidding me. Take your that was the response. No, wow. that was the response. Um, <laughs> she said, "You know, we, you know, we, you know, you need to go to the police for this type." I was like, "Going, I did go to the police, but the thing is, I already knew." with the police that they couldn't do very much is yeah. a documentation of me reporting the case. And that was it. Um, but you know, with, with people around, you know, they should be careful, you know, who yeah. they allow sure. in the grounds anyway. Sure. So, so then I told them like, you know, relax. I already told the police, the police already knows, but you know, my, my daughter's here is under your supervision, which means that just keep an eye out. Uh, it's like, okay, I w we will show this to all of our staff here, but you know, really is not our job. So if anything happens, you know, it's not on us basically. So I was quite upset and I realized that I realized that in passively, I became a victim of stalking as well at yeah. that time. Yeah. Um, even though I was covering the case of stalking, but I became the victim yeah. of it too. Yeah. Um, and that really worried me. And there were many times where I caught myself in, in dangerous situations. And, you know, when you start off as a journalist very early on, you're, you're not going to be able to be part of a union in a sense, right. you know, because in the union, they have certain criteria that you need to be working as a journalist, you know, uh, 30% and you have to, you know, really show, show it in some ways. And yes. I couldn't really, cause it was kind of early on and I'm trying to create cases my own. Um, and so, yeah, I do. And there were cases like even now with the investigation, I do know we had to anonymize a lot of the, the women who came forward to us because their ex-husband are very affluent, wealthy people. 
um, and uh, there were you're talking were about cases. the domestic abuse uh, uh, yeah. cases that you're working on. Okay, yeah, yeah. So these are for, these are foreign mothers who are caught, caught in the legal system in trying to fight custody over their kids and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and if their partner is quite wealthy and they know how the gray areas work in, yes. in the legal system, they have such an advantage. Yeah. And one of them, you know, given the evidence that she was showing me and, you know, potential hackings and, and things like that. I was very worried about my startup, you know, the, the, the liability and, you know, the risks that we were taking. Yes. And we were also very worried about their own safety as well. Yeah. So it was, a, it took at least a year or so for me to kind of really figure out how to run these stories because I want to make sure that everyone's safe um, and that um, any details that we have of the perpetrator uh, or the potential perpetrator, um, you know, we eliminate anything that can tell who he is. Right. Um, because these were very powerful people, and, sure. and you know, if I were to go up against them, <sighs> yeah, there's no way I were going to win. In yeah. fact, it, I would probably go bankrupt, basically. Yeah, money so, talks. <laughs> absolutely, and this is the thing. Like, um, I constantly have to meet with. It's like I do get people telling me stories, and I know the risk of it. You know, you may think like, oh, I, you know, just talking about cases of our mothers. You know, that that would be um, not so much of a risk. You know, but there is because yeah. I'm very close in contact and I'm yes. writing a story about someone. Um, and you know, I get a lot of men, um, around me saying that, why did you not get his side of the story? Mm. Now, if the problem was that if we did do that, then we already expose the story that we were writing about him. Yes. And there was like a lot of ethical questions we have to ask, like, how do we make sure the accuracy of the story? How do we um, continue the, the integrity of journalism and, and things like that? There's a lot of processes in the editorial room where we were discussing how this can be done. Um, so yeah, absolutely, I get scared and I still get scared um, a lot of the stories because sometimes when you investigate something, you may think, okay, this is the, the starting point. But the more you dig, the more you realize yeah. that there's something more to this. This is very systemical. Yes. It could be involving yeah. a politician. It could be involving some people in higher power, you know, and how do you deal with that? Yeah. Cause you, you, know? you make a lot so, of friends doing that kind of work, but you also make some enemies. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that was not something that I take very lightly with my work. And I don't think, um, people understand the extent of my work. Um, it's only until now that I, I tell people like these type of things that happened to me, um, as a journalist and, um, and even for me, I'm, I'm still fighting the respect from Norwegian journalists to see me as a journalist. Um, and yes. and that's, an, that's another part of it because you want people on your side. You want to create allies. Um, but if you're, the potential allies don't see you as equal as them, you're kind of on your own. So a lot of times I feel like I'm on my own. I'm kind of like alone. I'm trying to deal with a lot. So. I had a Norwegian journalist who was actually uh, uh, interviewing and, and filming and talking with me for a story they were going to do on a major uh, television network. I'll just say that. And a major television, mm -hmm. television network here mm -hmm. in Norway. And he said something kind of half joking, but, but also an element of seriousness to it was that they don't, uh, he put the impression out there that they don't respect podcasters. Uh, yeah. And I said, uh, and I said half joking, but also half serious. I says, well, if uh, if the news media, your organization, for example, were to uh, uh, have a job for me, a meaningful job for me, then uh, maybe Norway would have one less podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good comeback. Actually. Yeah, and he, did, he didn't yeah. know uh, he didn't know what to do with that. But 
but there seems to be, I don't know, is elitism the right word? A certain element yeah. of that in the Norwegian journalistic community. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And one of the things that I continuously tell people, like, um, because I know, like, there are immigrants who have quite a bad experience with journalists. So when yes. I come up and show up as a journalist, they already have that skepticism yeah, yeah. towards me. So I often explain to them, like, um, I believe journalists uh, and, and media outlets, they should not be gatekeepers. They've been being gatekeepers for way, way too mm. long. They should be gate openers. We should be having those doors open and looking at ways forward yes. for how do we bring all the society and, and people together yes. um, and move forward together. Um, and I have no problem with citizen journalism. Uh, some people have it. Um, and But I, I often say like the stories are out there and the people who tell it, especially when it comes to journalism, there is a framework. There's this ethical framework that we have to live by. Yeah. There's a code of ethics that we can't cross over. But in all honesty, I've seen so many Norwegian journalists, you know, crossing over that time and time again, even publications in this country being funded by the government who are quite, you know, far right wing uh, propaganda channels yeah. getting funded that really, really, they've crossed that line of code of ethics. Yes. And I was yes. very, very, I was very, oh, what's the word? Um, frustrated and angry and just baffled by the, by the fact that there were the, the unions and um, the Norwegian authority on, you know, editorial work um, are not going up against that, you know, of things that have been, been, been published. That was something that really baffled me even today. Yeah. And I realized that the thing is in Norway is that you have three major media groups and it often depends on who's funding them, but uh, they are running the whole entire show. Basically yeah. you see, you know, a lot of the, the bigger ones that they're, from free major media group, um, and that really goes to show just the the kind of this ecosystem. I would say. Yeah, well, it doesn't allow for together, yeah, so. it doesn't allow for very much diversity of thought. No, it doesn't, um, and and that's something that I've, I've been frustrated with, and and the fact that they hold so much power, and the fact that that guy had the audacity to to put you down that way that made me even <laughs> yeah, more angry yeah. you know because like, who the hell does he think he is just because he is a journalist on a tv show has been there for a long time that he has the audacity to tell people that they can't tell stories this is what i get really really annoyed because for me i feel like anyone anyone can be a journalist they do not need to go through the degrees here you know they don't need to go to Oslo Med. they don't need to go to university of Oslo uh, to take a degree in journalism and be able to call themselves journalists. Journalists are storytellers. They can just pick up the phone and just tell yes. you the story yeah. and the events. Yeah. And as long as they keep within the boundaries and, you know, the code of ethics, they are reporters in my eyes and they should always be so. You called me, a, you called me a storyteller <laughs> a little earlier. Um, maybe I should, maybe I need to update my resume. Uh, <laughs> storyteller and wannabe journalist. <laughs> yes, why not? I mean, the thing is like, Every storyteller has um, a knack for journalism. Uh, I think the so. only, and I think like, um, as long as you, like I said, you know, as a journalist, you, you go through a lot of rigorous, you know, um, editorial process. You know, you're, you're looking for accuracy. You're looking for, do you have the integrity? Do you keep the dignity of the people you, you, you're interviewing? Yes. You know, uh, I'm making sure of those things. Of course, not all the code of ethics, you know, have everything in comprehensiveness. But for us, especially with the OSADES, we, we look into the dignity yeah. of the people we're talking to at all times and looking at 
um, are, what is the narrative that we're portraying here? Are we perpetuating a narrative that's often very negative already? Mm. Uh, or can we do something more about this? Yes. Is, is those lines of questioning that a real true journalist would go through. And I think yeah. you do that. Yeah. So I didn't think that any journalist that works for, I'm sorry to say, NRK, TV2, whatever you guys think you are, you are not the best journalist in the goddamn world. I'm sorry to say, you are <laughs> not. And, and, and the very fact is you do not have the global competence. You don't have the diversity lens on you. And you just going out there thinking you're better than others, it makes me annoyed. And what makes me even more annoyed is that, yes, you're hiring interns with minority background, but the thing is, like I said to you, John, before, the same shit goes in and goes out. If the same methodology of how you report in journalism is still the same, the same shit comes out. So although like you got really good minority reporters, I'm not saying that you guys are bad. I know some are really, really good, but they still have that elitist mentality that really annoys me because there are still minorities, model minorities who are still closing the door behind their backs. They're not allowing others to come through. That really annoys me. Um, And I've been very outspoken about it. And I think that's one thing that I really want to change society here, especially with the international community is how we need to come together collectively and not thinking that you're, ego taking place that oh i've gone this far you know i shake hands with politicians and white folks that in high places that i'm going to forget everyone else you know i'm going to say i'm helping immigrants but really are you (laughs) the question is because that's what i'm asking because i've seen this over the last decade of me living in norway there's so many people that's gone in the press these are people who spoke really loudly who has done so much for uh, diversity thank you i know you did but why has it taken this long why can you not be a little bit more radical in your decisions in allowing other people to come with you? Yes. Now, I've been put in a position before when I first came into Norway, I worked for somebody who didn't, who feared me. He feared that I was oh. going to go above and I did. So I didn't care. What, 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 do, you mean, it, so, what do you mean go, go above? What do you mean by that? Well, the thing is, it's like, I don't know whether you've been in those situations where um, people who are a little bit older than you, who's been in the system a lot longer and, you know, they're, they're well-known or whatever, um, dealing with issues. But if they see someone younger who is very talented, oh, who yes, could absolutely. compete and can yeah, go, yeah. you know, beyond and beyond what she is doing, rather than seeing us as allies, she would find any ways to put you down. Yes. They do that. And yes. I was put in that situation. I was put in that situation that I didn't realize, but it was only until like other people were coworkers of mine started telling me about, you know, what the boss did behind my back. I realized that, oh, if that's the case. And it was not just her. There were other people. I've had like uh, previous ex-bosses of mine saying that, oh, I would never allow you to come work for me. I would get my cousin to work for me. And wow. these were... And these are minority wow. people in, in yeah. the society, okay? Yeah. They're, they're not like white Norwegians. I understand that with white Norwegians, but... When it, minorities do that, my heart sinks even more. And that's really like frustrating for me. We need to, uh, I'm always looking for allies, but we need to be our own. Uh, yeah, we need more cohesiveness in the minority community here in Norway. Uh, and of course, back home in the United States, but 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 more closer to home for me now here in Norway. Um, what is What do you think brings that feeling what do you, what do you, what do you think makes minorities want to step on other minorities? You know the, the the classic crabs in a bucket pulling each other down type of thing. What where, where does that come from? I think it's um, I think it's a scarcity mindset. I think because like I feel like as immigrants we are left with the crumbs. 
you know, to uh, deal with. Like, uh, you know, if you, if you look at, you crabs know, crabs in a bucket. <laughs> yeah. So is, is, is that, and it's, it's, it's like, um, and also like pe- people want to, I don't know. I, I'm not exactly sure, but in my, in my mind is often, a lot to do with ego at the end of the day, I think. It's a lot to do with that. I want to take my space. This is my space. I want to be the the go-to person for experts, you know, on X, Y, and Z. Um, and they see that other people who are doing that, they're going to have another slice of the cake. I want to have the whole entire cake, you know, type of yeah. thing. So, um, and it's, it's a fear. I think it, it comes out of fear at the end of the day. It's coming out of ego. It comes out of fear. And I don't think, you know, People should have that fear. I mean, yes, sure, there are people who want to uh, rise above and kick people along the side. I've seen that. Uh, I've seen many startups that are similar uh, with different in, um, intentions and attitudes. Some of them had so much ego than the other, um, and they're just trying to hold their ground. Um, and I find that really disturbing um, yeah, in the startup yeah. world. Um, it's kind of like the elbows, you know, like, this is mine. You know, yeah, yeah, away, yeah. Sort of thing. Um, and... Yeah, I think we have to try and pull. We have to try and we have to try and pull each other up. You know, I'm trying to rise up, but I'm also trying to take people with me. Um, Absolutely, you know, I'm trying to amplify the stories of some people. You know, I, I had Rawa on. Uh, that episode is out now today, and I want to I want to amplify. I want to tell people what she's doing. You know, I'll be releasing your episode, and I want to amplify your story. And if more of us, uh, more of the minority community in Norway, had that mindset. Yes, do the work for yourself. Do everything you can for yourself, but look at every opportunity that you have to bring someone with you. I think we yeah. would be. I think we would be better off, and I think Norway as a nation would be better off as well. And I think I told you as well, John, that you know my ambition is to create an international media house yeah. just as good as the Shipset Media Group because if we all stand together collectively, how much power is that? People yeah, would say, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of a bit like you're creating a wall of people, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's really hard for people to attack you. Yeah. But if you are so dispersed and polarized and minorities not having that cohesiveness, it's so easy for, you know, divide and conquer, you know, for, yes. you know, the other. So if we are stuck together, and I truly believe that, and I believe that after three years of finding the right people, I'm getting there. Just like you saying that you got the circle of people, are you yes. meeting people? Yeah. It's the same with me. Like um, they have their own circle of friends who have that same mentality and we're coming together. And I'm looking forward to having more people to come yes. together where we're looking at how we can be like another media outlet that people can trust and, and follow as well. I look at it as so. a spiral, but not a downward spiral, an outward spiral. <laughs> I'm meeting this person, which then leads me to me. It's almost like a pyramid scheme. And, yeah, and making exactly. more and more connections, uh, being influenced by more and more positive people, and then hopefully in return, influencing more and more people, just spreading the positivity, spreading the word, spreading the influence, uh, spreading the motivation. That's what I'm trying to do. Now, as far as what you're trying to do, how far along are you in making the Oslo desk into this um this powerhouse, this, this, this conglomerate, are you reaching out into trying to reach out into other mediums? Um, um, how far along uh, are you? What remains to be done? Um, I don't know if I should say this. It's not quite official, but maybe I should say a little bit, but it's been going breaking around news, breaking news on the, on the coming <laughs> so, home podcast with John Allen, breaking news. <laughs> Um, so I recently got approached by a radio station after, uh, he picked up a, an article about me regarding conference. So, um, he's asked me to take over, um, the radio station. So, and I also have a lot of friends with certain startup and companies and we're kind of now looking at 
where the energy is coming together. Take, in that now, when, so. you, when you say take over, <laughs> do you mean take over in management or take over as in ownership? Ownership. Okay. The whole entire thing. So, which means that it gives me that flexibility, like, oh, wow, okay, then there's a radio station, I got my own, like, mm-hmm. publication website, and we got the podcast, and we got other few people who are doing their own things. Uh, Rawa is one of those uh, people as well that we're looking at how we can um, yeah. have that synergy together, and also, so, things are coming together. Um, how big of a I radio think- station is it? Does it cover only Oslo? Is it, is it a, does it have national coverage, as far as listenership? The, the, re- the, the, the radio station is done in a quite an interesting way. It's not quite normal in the sense that it has several different languages. So every day, oh. um, it is running it at a different language. I see. Uh, so that it can so that it can um, probe into a lot of the ethnic minority groups here um, nationally, even because this is something you can listen you can listen to them uh, digitally. Uh, I'm not going to say the name, but, no. but it's just, but it's it's done in such a way that. Um, that it, it has its purpose, it has a legacy of its own. Um, and they have been approached by the public health institution to try and get information now, especially about the COVID regulations um, and, you know, the health information towards these different community groups. So there is that interesting part to what they do. Yes. And they do have, it is a very niche, it is very, very niche, I would say, it's a very niche radio station. Um, but it's kind of reason why he kind of brought me on, you know, trying to see if there's anything yes. else that could be done with that. Right. Because it, it, in a sense that it, it was something that we had been discussing internally in the Ossodes as well. Like, how do we reach more people who may not know English very well? Mm-hmm. How can we, you know, have it in different languages? And I realized that a lot of people who are doing businesses um, and startup you know, trying to help the immigrant society and, and community, they are looking into this too. You know, yes. I know a friend of mine who, um, Chisum, who uh, had her space and diversify. She's she has funding to create these um, videos in different languages um, to talk about you know the COVID situation, what you need to do, you know, washing your hands and everything. Yeah. And she managed to do that. And I think we're all more and more and are trying to serve the immigrant community as much as possible. And of course, there's a generation gap in some sense that there's some who are had a lot more digital presence, some people are not. So that's why the radio station is still, um, I think it, it kind of penetrates a, a lot more uh, older generation, but I think it's still equally as important as well. So I think, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's exciting, I must admit, you know, um, having to sure. have that kind of opportunity. I'm not even um, involved and I get excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's like we, we, I'm still trying to get people involved, you know, um, and seeing how we can do things because, I don't have a business background and I, I often say this, you know, I don't have, I'm still learning a lot how to build up a meteor house, how that yes. works and function, how, how things could be administered. And I need all these external helps, people who believe um, in what we're trying to do and people I can trust. Yes. And that's the most important point that I can trust them with the confidential information that I will give them uh, and look at how we can um, build this up. But it's been three years now and it's been, you know, uh, to, you know, compared with many startups, we're quite slow in a sense. But I think like this is the year um, that I think things could really move a very wow. big step forward. That's exciting. Um, and yeah, I, I think it is. And it's a little bit scary for me, but it's, yeah, I yeah. think like we're, we're at, I think we're at the right point uh, where we need to be in our journey. Um, and it's just trying to get people involved and um, who are able to help me uh, build this because I don't, really know how. Um, and I'm still, and I'm still looking for answers. I'm still yeah. learning. Um, but you I'm obviously not- have the right instincts, you know, because there is, there has been growth, you know, you're still here. 
uh, you know, things are happening. So you obviously have the right instincts if you don't have that that practical background that can be applied to it. You, you at least have the right instincts and in the, in the drive. The drive is there. The energy is there. Yeah, I think so. And I think like that's what people have really said a lot about me is my perseverance. Yes. It, yeah. it just keeps going. Like even it's admirable. My personal, it's yeah it's it is i don't know it's, it's, it is it's, it's, <laughs> okay, i know i know it. i'll take I it I'll, I'll take it just say thank I'll take you it. <laughs> i think like for me it's, it's just the fact that i i i don't know i just often i i knew this like as a kid that i have this drive for things like i remember like in my family i was the only one who said that i will not change my name to an english name People uh, need to learn my name. It must be Carmen Mac. I don't care. You know, my mother was very worried <laughs> she said, because my sister and my brother, you know, they both have English names that they use that I would, I refuse to change my name because I know like the hardship would be a lot, you know, worse for me. Yeah. But I felt that um, I felt this, I didn't know this drive, this determination. I, I always have this kind of moral um, aspect of wanting to do good in society, no matter what. Um, and I find like I, I've been, in very interesting conversations, mostly with religious people. It's like, oh, but you may be doing good, but how, how are you going to get to paradise or where are you going to get to heaven? I'm like, going, I said that I'll leave that up to the end when I die. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> yes. but, I, but I think like, <laughs> but we'll see what happens then. But I think like for me, it's, it's, it's the drive to making sure that the society that we're living in um, should be better. I don't, yes. th- I really truly believe that human suffering that we see today, a lot of it can be eliminated. Oh, absolutely. Or, a lot of it is because of people have policies is because of how the structure society is. And I think it's, that should be gone. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think I, I trying to do that through the Ossides in my way and, and trying to carry on with the hope of looking at what I can do. Cause I often think of me as a soldier amongst a bigger army of people that I don't know where they are, yeah. but I'm looking for my own, own soldiers, <laughs> I guess. The lonely soldier. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I need to meet my other soldier, you know, and we're, we're going to create there's that. A pool, song, that there's a song in that. Maybe I need to put some lyrics down. There's a song in that about <laughs> this lonely soldier searching for, yeah, uh, there's something there. There's something. That'd there. be interesting. I will listen to that. You know, you have to send it to me when you do it. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. but that's how I felt always. I always felt quite alone, but I always feel like the more I continue wanting to survive and wanting to continue to live and do the good, I will meet other people. It may take me longer, but hopefully it'll cost my path. And I think I'm meeting those people. I mean, in the past three years, you know, I'm starting to see these people uh, yes. coming onto my path uh, little by little. And I think this year has escalated, I think, because a lot of the, I think what happened was a lot of the coverage that we did with the Black Lives Matter movement had really put us in the spotlight. Okay. So we, we were the only ones who um, did a live, the whole entire live stream because the organizers themselves had issues technically. So they weren't able to live stream, but so everyone was like coming to the also desk live stream. Uh, And Melanie was there with the live stream. And I was like in, you know, the U S embassy doing the live, a little bit of live stream there and everything. So we have really good comprehensive coverage. um, And I think people started realizing the importance of our presence. I think that momentum just went shut up, you know, to now that people start realizing, you know, the work, but it, you know, besides journalism, it's, it's a lot to do with that, creating that space to talk about media and how undiverse it is, because I think people were craving that. And I realized that when the, we had the conference about a month or so ago, um, when we had some comments, you know, a lot of the people who registered were students around the world. 
who okay. are saying like at university they're learning about journalism but they're not talking about the issues like diversity and da 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 right, and they right. came and they tried came you know they came to learn it from this conference i was like wow okay so we have a, a, actually a global crisis issue here Interesting. you know so wow. yeah well i what can i say i i got just as motivated and inspired from this conversation as i thought i would um <laughs> I, th I think you're an amazing person. I think you're doing amazing work. And I'm looking forward to the day where you can get rid of that part-time job <laughs> and where the Oslo desk is also a radio show, a written form newspaper, a podcast, and to be seen on television. Now that, <laughs> that would be cool. That would be That's cool. That would be cool. We'll just have to keep going, moving forward. And I, hopefully I get more people um, involved um, because, you know, I can't do this alone. Let's put it that way. So. Yeah. Well, you're the kind of person that attracts uh, like-minded people. You know, there are other people out there and, and you're finding them one at a time and, and you're building your team and things are going to happen. Yeah. I know it. I know these things. <laughs> just, just, I know these things. Everything will be fine. We'll, we'll, we'll have a party afterwards. <laughs> 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 So. Well, listen, Common. I, I, again, I truly appreciate this. Uh, I want you to know you always have a spot on my podcast. If there's anything you want to talk about, anything you want to promote, um, uh, whatever that may be, you've got a place here. This is the beginning of a friendship, hopefully the beginning of some kind of working relationship. You and I think too much alike to not have Absolutely. to not have <laughs> conversations like this uh, several more times in the coming in the coming days and weeks and months and years. Yeah, absolutely. Thank yeah. you, John. It's been a pleasure meeting you. So. Yeah. Comment, everybody. Uh, check her out, the Oslo Desk. Um, where do they find you? Do you have a website, by the way? We do. It's called oslodesk.com. We are trying to um, redesign it. Oslodesk.com. Yeah. yeah, oslodesk.com. So we, we are trying, we're out of the process of redeveloping the website a little bit. So you'll see it coming. <laughs> so it'll be there. It'll, get it, it'll be there. It'll be um, there. So yeah, we also have um, Toddcast, which is our podcast. Um, and also you can find us on uh, Facebook and on Instagram. Uh, we're a little bit more active on uh, Facebook, I must admit. So follow us there. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, everybody, go find her. Go find the Oslo desk. Common mock, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, John.